I want to ask you a question today. What do you do out of reverence for God in your life? Think about that for a minute. What do you do in your life out of reverence for God? You say, well, I'm here. I came to worship this morning. That's what I do out of reverence for God. Maybe that's why you're here today. But is showing reverence to God something that we do just on Sunday just in church? Is it something that we do just around certain people or certain times? Or is it something we're supposed to do in every aspect of our life? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Because it seems if we truly believe God, not just believe in God, but believe God and trust Him and want to honor Him, we revere Him. And I think that's a word that's kind of archaic maybe, revere, reverence for God. Hold him in the highest regard. I think that's something that's kind of lost in our culture today. Would you all agree with that? Yeah, I believe God. And as I was talking to somebody the other day, they say, I believe in God. I'm just not sure how I feel about him right now. Brutally honest answer, and I can appreciate that. But we need to know who our creator is. We should revere him. We should revere the one who saved us. We just sang about those things that has a reckless love that comes after us no matter the cost. We should revere Him in every aspect of our lives. But as we go out through life, as we've gone out through history, there's been lots of people throughout history and even in our culture and in our time who claim to be God followers, who claim to be Jesus followers, yet they fail to practice in their everyday, daily lives the clear guidelines, the clear laws and teachings of God's Word. Why is that? Well, we're human, Craig. Well, of course we are. But don't people realize that when those who are outside of the church or those who are outside of Christianity, those who are not believers, when they see the behaviors of those who claim to believe and respect and honor those guidelines that God has given us in His Word, when they don't really adhere to those, they say, I'm completely turned off to Christianity And don't they see the disunity that that kind of behavior displays? And yeah, they do see that. So where's the disconnect between God's clear commands and our ignoring of those commands? Why is there a disconnect? Now, we all are guilty of it. I'm guilty. We all are guilty. But it seems that it's ultimately a selfish problem. You know what a selfish problem is? You ever had that in your family? (laughs) You ever had that in your life? Well, what we do is, is even though we want what we want, that's called selfish. I want, and there's nothing really necessarily wrong with that in and of itself. But when I want what I want regardless of the cost, there, there's a disconnect there. And even though we're clear that there's certain behaviors or lack of action or wrong in our lives, we're clear on that. We've been taught that. We have values. Our desire to get what we want or not experience what we don't want somehow rationalizes or justifies our behavior. Do you ever do that? I do that. Well, I know that's not right, but because I need to get this to get to where I want to be, then I rationalize and justify that sometimes. And we can look from the outside on somebody else's life, and we can clearly watch videos on social media or TV or whatever, or the news, and we go, I can't believe that group, I can't believe that person is doing that thing. That's clearly wrong. That's clearly hurting other people. That's clearly unjustified. We can clearly point that out when someone else is breaking law, but... When we're on the inside, many times we fail to see or we simply ignore what is clearly wrong because, you know what, I'm benefiting from that situation. So I don't see it as wrong or I'm ignoring that it's wrong because I'm benefiting from it. 
But as y'all all know, inside or internal issues can sometimes be the most dangerous, can't they? Did we not see this in the past year, how our country has had all these issues inside our country that have divided us? And people really push those buttons to try to make that, that happen. But we can see that internal issues can be very damaging to a team. If you've ever been on a team, whether that's a sports team or a working environment team, you can see that in organization, leadership, a vision. Even in our families, when we see an internal issue, there can be some real destruction there, can't there? We've all seen that. Well, Nehemiah, as we've been going through and we've been talking about vision reconstruction, we're looking at the writing of Nehemiah from the Old Testament. If you haven't been here, that's okay. We're going to keep going through this. Nehemiah was an amazing leader, an amazing man who really trusted God and felt like God gave him a clear vision of what to do with his life, and he followed that. And he had painted a picture of the future that had produced passion in the people of Jerusalem. He said he went back. He was... 1,700 miles away in Babylon, and he was the, uh, uh, you know, he was the cupbearer to the king. That means he tasted and drank his food before he got it to make sure it wasn't poison. And he told the king of this vision that he had to go back to Jerusalem, where he's from, all his family, all his relatives from, and rebuild the walls. And the king amazingly gave him that opportunity and the resources. So he's gone back, and he has got these people there who've been living in these broken down walls, this broken down city, to gave them this picture of the future that produced passion in them, and they're starting to rebuild these broken walls. Momentum was building, and then there were even outside enemies that noticed what was going on, and they'd say, what's going on over there in Jerusalem? They're starting to rebuild the walls. There's all this excitement. There's all this momentum going. We've got to do something. Their enemies didn't like this, and they posed some threats on them, as we looked at last week. They threatened to stop the project through violence, but Nehemiah encouraged the people. He says, you take a hammer in one hand and you keep working. You take a sword in the other and you defend yourselves. You defend your families. You defend who we are. And so last week we looked at that external problem that posed a problem for rebuilding that wall project. But today we're going to look at an internal problem that created also a problem for the project. And in this problem, just like the external one, it was affecting the morale of the project. People were getting discouraged. The project was slowing down, and Nehemiah had to address this. Sometimes this is the worst when it's internal. You expect your enemies, you expect those who don't buy into your vision to try to sabotage it, but you don't expect your own people on your own team that are a part of your own country to do that. This vision includes you. You're part of the vision. It is for you. Why are you doing this? So Nehemiah has to address the real outer criticism and the threat to the project. And as we saw last week, when he addressed that last week, he prayed, he had this raw, honest prayer to God about what was going on, and he called down some pretty um, unfavorable uh, things on his enemies, but he said, God, you need to take care of them because they're trying to stop this vision that's clearly yours. He reflected on the fact that God was the source of the vision and this project. God, you've got to keep this going because I'm a part of it, but you're the source of it. And then he acted. He adjusted the plan, but he did not change the vision. He secured the city walls where there were openings, where they hadn't been built up, where there was an opening in the wall. He sent guards, and they, people saw this. The enemy says, they've heard. 
They know we're coming for them and they're ready for us. And that made them back off when they saw that they were addressing that problem. So today we're going to look at chapter 5 of Nehemiah. We're going to have that on the screen. You can look at your Bibles or your personal device, whatever you have. But I want you to follow along and listen to how Nehemiah addresses this week this internal issue that was threatening the vision. And it wasn't just the project of building the walls. It was about their identity. It's more than that. You ever been on a sports team where the coach or even in school and a teacher says, this is not just about this test. This isn't just about this one game. This is way bigger than that. It's about who we are as a team, who you are as a person, how you do this, how you take this test, how you play this game. It all matters. Nehemiah is is making sure they understand that. So listen to what's happening in chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous In order for us to get and stay alive, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called them... So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. May such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they promised. I'm going to stop right there. I know that's a little long. But you can see what's, what's happened here. Nehemiah had adjusted the plan to keep the vision and the project moving. And now there's an internal issue that's come up. And as you read, there's men and women, families, wives and husbands are coming to Nehemiah because he is the project manager. He's the leader for this whole thing. And he goes, we're building this. It's going great. Half of the walls are up. Our enemies know that we're serious about this. But now we have an internal struggle. And these people are working really hard, not only their regular day-to-day jobs, but they're also working on these walls. And now he finds out that some of them are like, we don't even have food. How are we going to continue, Nehemiah? And when you don't have food and you're working, you get hangry, don't you? You know what I'm talking about. And we laugh about that, but it's true. You know how it feels when you're really hungry and you're trying to work and you get weak and then it just, things irritate you. So all this is coming and it's, it's, Not good morale right now among the people in this project. Many were having to actually mortgage their fields, their vineyards. 
their houses in order to get money, to get food. And this is devastating to them. They're losing what they've been working for all these years. So you have this great project, this great vision from Nehemiah that's from God. And they go, yeah, this is great. But guess what? We're losing our homes, our vineyards, our fields. And then he even said, in some cases, our kids. We're having to sell them into slavery just so we can eat. What kind of project is this? And so there's definitely something that needs to be done. And so Nehemiah has to act. And bottom line... They're working on the walls, but they're having trouble getting food, and this can't continue in this way. So Nehemiah ponders the problem. He thinks strategically and wisely about what is going on, and it says he becomes angry. Now, you know in the last few weeks I've been talking about these enemies of Nehemiah, and there's uh, different, three different guys that they keep saying over and over again, and I don't pronounce their names very well, so I just call them the irritators, okay? And they are being very... Uh, Uh, They become very angry when they see the progress that the Jews are making. And this very same Hebrew word for anger, that they're angry that progress is being made, is the same word that Nehemiah is used for Nehemiah's anger in this situation, that my own people on this project are treating each other like this. What in the world? Why are they doing this? So he becomes angry. And anger can be a motivator when we respond to it carefully, can it? Is anger a bad thing? Some of us would say, oh, always. No, anger can motivate us in a good way to do something. And Nehemiah recognized the problem. He recognized those involved and acted on this roadblock to the vision and the project. And he calls these people out. He calls a meeting. He calls them to account. What you're doing is not right. You're, you're, you're charging interest on people. And that was clearly against what they were supposed to do. He calls out those who are guilty. And he calls... For them to repent. You know what repentance means? You, oh yeah, it means it's completely turned around. Well, it does, but it means you, you have some sorrow for what you've done because you realize it has affected other people in a negative way and you have sorrow for that, but you don't just go, well, I'm sorry and move and, and keep doing, going down the road you're going. You actually have sorrow and you follow that by a change of behavior and action. There has to be a change of behavior and action. And then he calls for a realignment to the vision that God's called us to and they had to do that. He didn't need to pray about this behavior. You know, so, hey, you've been talking about how he prays about everything. Why didn't he pray about this? He didn't need to pray about this. This was clearly wrong. It was clearly against the law of Moses that they'd been given by God clearly over the years. It clearly did not reflect the character of God. It clearly was reflecting poorly on them as God's children, as God's people. They were representatives of God, the king. God was their father, and that was who their true identity, and God would not charge his own people interest, and this is what they were doing. It hurt people. It caused distrust among the community. It created division among the community and the vision itself, and so he had to address it. So how did Nehemiah know this was wrong, and how did he know that they knew that this was wrong as well? You say, well, maybe some of them didn't know. Maybe they were ignorant of the law. No, they knew. You know why? Because they were Israelites. They had a covenant with God. They, this was part of their history. They knew that they had been in exile for all these years and had been allowed to come back. And guess what? You're falling back into your own patterns again of breaking the covenant of God. And you know it's wrong. Abraham Lincoln once said this, Some single mind must be master, else there will be no agreement in anything. Listen to that again. Some single mind must be master, else there will be no agreement in anything. The Jews knew that God, O Lord God Israel, you are one. There is one God. He is the master. He is the single mind. And there has to be agreement with that. And so he knew that they knew this was the right thing to do. Exodus 22. I'm just going to read you some of the law of Moses. If you lend money 
Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. They knew this. This is what they had been taught since they had been, grow- been growing up. In Leviticus, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you into the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. So this was clearly in the the covenant they had with God. They knew this and they were doing the opposite of it. So notice who was doing this. Did you notice who was doing this? The nobles and officials. What a shock. The people in charge were doing this. The people that were benefiting, they were in positions of government and even religion. They were the ones benefiting. Maybe they came back from Babylon and they had money and they were just looking for opportunities to exploit people. People still do that today, don't they? Has anybody tried, any of y'all got maybe possibly tried to get scammed over the last year over things? Well, of course we have. People are looking for opportunities. Maybe some people have had damage to your homes during the tornadoes. You think there were some people out there trying to scam you? Well, of course there were. There's always been people who try to take a crisis and do something in, in order to benefit themselves. And so the nobles and officials, they're the government and religious city leaders. They had money and they were trying to exploit the poor at this time. They were charging interest on money and grain, taking property. And they were okay with that. And even taking some of these people's family. And they were okay with that. And Nehemiah says, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. That's going to stop right now. That is not what God has called us to be or to do. And it's got to stop. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, says, Nehemiah was not a politician who asked... What's popular? He was not a diplomat who asked, what is safe? But he was a true leader who said, what is the right thing to do at this moment? And he did it. He calls them out and reminds them how this reflects so poorly on them as God's people. And part of Nehemiah's argument is the injustice on the part of the Jewish people. It reflects on the righteousness of God. You're supposed to be showing the world who God is, what His character is like, and you're doing these kind of things. The character of the community reflects upon God, and Israel was to be different from the rest of the world. You know what the word for different is? Holy. And he's called them to be holy. He also makes it clear that he and his team have been handling this issue very differently. They knew people needed food. They knew people needed to to have this in order to work on it. But guess what? He's given people food. He's given people money. And he says... We're not charging interest, but you guys are charging interest. And the other thing, I don't know if you caught this, but he says, we've bought back a lot of our brothers and sisters from Gentiles. So when he came into Jerusalem, he recognized there were a lot of Jews living in Jerusalem and even outside of Jerusalem that were Jewish people that wanted to be a part of this project, but they had been sold into slavery by some of their enemies or Gentiles. And he had some resources from the king, and he was buying back his own people saying, I want you to be part of this project. You're one of us. You're Jewish. You're part of our nation. We're going to buy you back from them. And it was very expensive in some cases. And now he's saying, and some of you, those people that got released, now you are buying them and making them serve you. What in the world? That's not what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. So Nehemiah 
clearly identified the problem and the source, but he also called it out. He says it's wrong, it's sin. And that's something that our culture, we hesitate to do now, isn't it? Oh, I don't want to say that's wrong because that will offend somebody. You may think it's wrong, but, but I feel like it's okay. But what does God's Word say? There has to be a standard. And I hope you young people are listening to that. There has to be a standard. And the standard is not just whatever you think and whatever I think, because then how many standards do we have? Well, there's a whole bunch of standards out there. If there's not a Creator who has set a standard clearly for us, you need to have that in your life. You may not believe that now, but ultimately you will find when everybody has a standard and there's not a clear one, it's going to be chaos. And everybody just does whatever they want. And we see that in our culture now. I don't think it's brought about peace. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think it's brought about peace. And he makes it clear that his team is not doing these things. Nehemiah not only clearly identified the problem, he called it out. And he says, stop charging the interest, give back their property to them, give back their kids to them, and give back the interest. Charles Swindoll wrote a book several years ago called Give Me Another Brick, talking about Nehemiah's leadership. And he said this, when God shows his people a particular sin that we are guilty of, he doesn't tell us to take our time in dealing with it. No, he says, deal with it now. When we realize we are doing wrong, now is the time to stop it. Making long-range plans to correct the problem allows the sands of time to hone off the raw edges of God's reproof in our lives. We end up tolerating that sin and maybe even, in some cases, protecting it. Such laxity greatly concerns our Lord. A prompt and thorough dealing with wrong in our lives is essential. It's true, isn't it? If we don't deal with it immediately, we just kind of let it. It's like a pet that just hangs around. And we're just going to keep it. Oh, but I like that. I like that sin. It's not really hurting that many people. It's not really that big of a deal. Yeah, he makes a mess every now and then, but I'll clean it up. It'll be all right. And we just let that pet hang around and hang around, and it becomes a part of us. And amazingly... Nehemiah doesn't give them a chance. He goes, no, we're going to address this right now. The project can't keep going. The vision cannot move forward until we address this right now. Everybody knows what's happening, and he addresses it. And amazingly, what did they say? Okay, you're right. You're right. They had nothing to say, he says in in his writing. They had nothing to say because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew it, but they needed somebody to hold them accountable. People don't do what you expect. People do what you inspect. Isn't that right? We have to have accountability. And that's what he says. Look, I'm inspecting what's going on and this is wrong. It's got to stop and it's got to stop now. This shows God was clearly working through Nehemiah and the people having respect for his integrity in action. He wasn't just saying these things and then charging interest. He wasn't just saying these things and not helping people. He was doing all the right things. So they clearly saw that in his life and said, he's the leader and he's right. He's actually doing the right thing. We're going to listen to him. And that was an amazing thing. It reminds me of how a leader sometimes cannot be the person that they need to be. You remember when David tried to rig that deal with Bathsheba. And he rigged it so her husband would be killed when he found out she was pregnant. And the prophet Nathan went to him and told him this story about, uh, hey, there was a, a man, a rich man, who had all these lambs. And he went to the poor man and stole his lamb and was going to fix it for dinner. What do you think about that, David? And David goes, that's horrible. That man should die. And he goes, that's you. That's you, David. You're doing that. And the king could have killed the prophet Nathan. But he says, you're right. I've sinned against God. And David repented and turned things around. And that's what God calls us to do. It takes courage. In our lives, there are going to be times when we see there is a misalignment with the vision 
and what's actually going on. This might be at your job. This might be on your sports team, in your band, at school, on a project, a team, maybe even in your own family. Somebody is misaligning what we're supposed to be doing with their own selfish behavior, and we have to address it sometimes. But you have to not only address it, but you have to offer a clear solution like Nehemiah did. It can be tough. It takes courage. It takes persistence to do that. And here's what may be even harder in your life. You ever tried to address a close friend or a close family member about their destructive behavior in their life? That's fun, isn't it? They don't want to hear that. But if you really love them, especially if it's someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, when you confront them about their behavior, it can be very difficult. They will get defensive, and they will say things like, it's none of your business. Who are you to call me out? You're not perfect. Like, that's a requisite. You have to be perfect before you can call anybody out. But that's how it happens. Y'all have been there. But in life, these can be defining moments for you. When I, I, That song that, the, that, that our worship team sang for us, the overwhelming, the reckless love of God, and all those things in that song. I love that song because it tells how God pursues us. He loves us enough to pursue us in our sin. While we were still what? Sinners. That's when God died for us. Not when we got it all together, but He pursues us. and going. You're going down the wrong path, and because I love you, I'm going to call you out and call you back to what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And it's not easy, but it can be a defining moment for you and your vision and your life. And it can also be a defining moment for a friend of yours or a family member because you reached out to them in love. So what ways, as we kind of close here today, in what ways as Jesus followers, as the church of Christ, how have we lowered the standard of thinking about moral issues in our culture. Think about that for a minute. How have we lowered the standards? Are the standards lower than they were 10 years ago? 20 years ago? 50 years ago? Why is that? How does that happen? If we know what the Bible teaches regarding how we treat others, if it's wrong to treat somebody, if the Bible tells us it's wrong to treat somebody and judge them based on the color of their skin or their economic background or whatever else it is, if that's wrong and you say, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but then we turn around and the same Bible tells us about abortion and sexual practices and integrity and in the way we handle our business, it's all matters. It's all truth, not just the part we want to use at the moment for our particular situation. It all matters in every aspect of our life. Do we believe that that matters? Do we revere God's wisdom, His standards on these issues? Or do we just say, well, I don't know how I feel about that issue. God doesn't really care how you feel about that issue. He cares about your obedience to those issues. Most importantly, do we practice them? Do people say, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, I'm going to literally practice these things, not just talk about them, not just sing about them, not just say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but really in our daily lives, in every aspect of our lives, we have to actually do these things. People are watching us. Why should we and do we lower our standards to the world's system of moral behavior? Well, we clearly see that's happening, don't we? And not only do we have to acknowledge people have a different moral standard, our culture now wants us to celebrate it, don't they? Not only do you have to acknowledge that somebody thinks differently, you have to celebrate it. Now, I don't go out and try to protest a lot of things that our people are doing, but I'm certainly not going to celebrate it. But that's what the world is calling us to do. We should not answer to the people of this world, but to God, our Creator and our Savior. One commentator said this, Without holiness, no one can see God. When we fail, we can turn to the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. 
and every stain of guilt. There's no other answer for that cleansing that we need so desperately than the blood of Jesus. He pursued us to get us right with God. Our lives have been made pure by His atoning sacrifice for our sins. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only motive that inspires a person to stay right before God and keep our lives pure and clean. Well, where do we find the power to truly overcome? It's in the cross of Jesus. Think about if every leader truly revered, had reverence for God as our Creator and Jesus as His Son as our Savior, the moral integrity of not only the church, but of businesses and governments would be a standard that the whole world would follow. The secret of triumph is found not only in saying, listen carefully, especially young people, we're not just saying, say no to everything. You just got to say no. You can't have any fun. That's not what we're saying. You don't just say no to sin, but you also say yes to God. I believe you. What you're telling me is destructive. I'm listening to you. And my response is that your will and your purpose for my life is the most important thing. And I'm going to listen to that. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He allowed God to reconstruct his personal vision to become God's vision, God's will, and God's purpose. And maybe there's somebody here today that needs to do that. That you, you recognize, you know what, I'm a selfish person by nature. We all are. But somehow we submit to the overwhelming, reckless love of God that calls us where it lights up the shadows, we'll climb any mountain, all of those things. That's how bad He wants to see our lives come to what they're supposed to be, what He created us for. And He did create us for a purpose. All you graduates this morning, you have been created for a purpose. A purpose, and that's exciting. We're going to hear in a minute what that part of that purpose is. You're pursuing a degree in a new place, and that's exciting. But if it's outside of God's will, guess what? If it's outside of God's will, you're going to struggle. And God doesn't want you to struggle. He wants you to struggle in a good way, but He wants to, you to pursue what He created you. He formed you in your mother's womb for a plan. Ephesians tells us we are made in, uh, we are made in Jesus Christ, in His image. We're made in His image to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are His creation. We are His workmanship to do that. So know that, believe that. So maybe there's somebody here today that needs to take that step of naming Jesus as your Lord and Savior and get on track with God's room. We're going to offer that invitation. But as you ponder that, if you need to pray, you can come up here and pray. We're going to also prepare our hearts for communion. Communion reminds us of why God should be revered. That He gave His only Son so that we would not be condemned for our sins. Think about that. We are not condemned. Therefore, Paul says, there is now, therefore, no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we are in Christ because God sent Him to die for us and resurrect for us. 